So as we begin our reading in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. It's been so busy over the last few years that I had a few jobs that were that I should have gotten to in a previous year, but I still had them to do this year. And one of them that I can think of was a barn out in the country, and we had to put a steel roof on top of it. When we finally got all done with that barn and were able to get off of it and pick the tools up and everything, it was, it was kind of neat to stand back and, and to look at it and to see what was, what was accomplished and, and it was finished. And it was just nice to be done. It was like, oh, it feels good that that's done. I'm glad that one's off the books. But you know what, I was just thinking about that a little bit, looking through this portion of Genesis. It's at the end of the creation, God has spent his six days creating the world. In the first three days, he was forming everything, forming the land and the seas. And then the last three days, he was filling everything, filling it with uh, what was going to live on and and produce uh, on the land. And he gets to all the way to the end and finishes that in six days, and it says he took the seventh day and he rested. And you know, a lot of times we tend to get so focused on work that we miss the, and maybe the enjoyment at the end, the satisfaction of a job completed. And you know what? That's a neat thing. God did not miss that. He didn't miss the satisfaction of the job completed. When we were looking at the creation, we saw that every day as it goes through, God kept saying, it is good, it is good, it is good. And when he gets all done with everything, he says, it is very good. And he's enjoying the satisfaction of the creation of his own hands. But the way that he caps that off is with the very last day, the seventh day, he just rests from his work. And it says we follow it through the rest of the Bible because it does it is a continuing principle. It is something that crosses the dispensations. We do see it as a continuing principle, a theme as we follow this idea of this day of rest, this Sabbath through the Bible. And that's what we're going to consider here this morning is just that day of rest, just that Sabbath of God as we look and kind of trace it from here throughout scripture and see its purpose in our lives. Well, first of all, we see that the Sabbath is based on God's finished work. Why did he rest? Because his work was complete. It repeats it a few times through the passage. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work that he had done in creation. So several times through there, he repeats this thing that he was done. He finished. It was complete. And so now it was time to rest. God rested from his work of creation. And then he built that as a pattern into our lives. We see it instituted at creation here as far as recognizing that God took a day of rest. It also says that God sanctified that day, that he made it holy. But we don't really see it as a command until after Israel is formed as a nation and they're brought out of Egypt, delivered out of Egypt, and they're brought out. It's one of the Ten Commandments. As we skip up to Exodus chapter 20, it's the fourth commandment. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It emphasizes again later in the book of Exodus in chapter 31. 
It says, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Remember, Israel had a covenant sign that was given to Abraham, and it was the covenant sign of circumcision. But you know what? As you look down through the history of Israel, those two things, circumcision and the Sabbath, are the two main distinguishing factors among God's people, the Israelites. And God is specific that it is for Israel. This is a command given for the nation of Israel as a people, and they were to observe it down through the ages. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. So very serious consequences for people that don't. Uh, Whoever does any work on it, that soul soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So we see he continually makes that point that, that there was a Sabbath that his people would follow in the nation of Israel, and that the purpose for that Sabbath rested on the finished work of God in creation. In Leviticus chapter 25, we see that the Sabbath would go beyond just days. They had Sabbath days, the seventh day of every week. So every Saturday, the Jewish people would set aside for rest and worship. But we notice also that Israel also was to keep Sabbath years. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai in Leviticus 25. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. And so they had a Sabbath year. So for six years, they're supposed to harvest their crops. The seventh year, they're supposed to let it lie. The land would get a Sabbath. Every seven years, they would get one season of rest. He also promised them, in the sixth year, I'm going to give you enough food for three years. And so if they were faithful to God and obeyed Him, in the sixth year, they would have such a harvest that they could store it up. And He said, it will last you through this whole year. It will last you through the planting season of the next year all the way to the harvest year so that if you look from the sixth year, you would have enough food to actually get you into the ninth year. And by that time, you're already harvesting again and everything's good. And then he also required another Sabbath. And this was a Sabbath of Sabbaths, if you want to think of it that way. It's the year of Jubilee. And that is also in Leviticus chapter 25. It says, you shall count seven weeks of years. Seven times seven years. You shall have 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month on the day of atonement. You shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. If you fell on financial hardships and had to sell your land or part of your land in order to overcome that, at the year of Jubilee, all the land goes back to the original clan that God gave it to to begin with. Now, he told the people, you're not allowed to cheat each other. If it's a long time, if it's 49 years to the next Jubilee, then obviously we're going to get a much better price for the land than if it's only seven years or three years to the Jubilee. 
And so he said, be fair and kind of prorate it. But at the end of the Jubilee, if you had to sell yourself into servitude, you became free. And so you would get set free. You would get your land back. And so all these things were factored in this idea of this year of Jubilee. So the Sabbath, obviously, as God institutes it amongst Israel, was a serious thing. They had one day off every week, one year off every seven years, and then this Jubilee every 50 years. It was also protected by God. God promised that if they did not keep this, that there would be judgment. So in Leviticus 26, what he's saying is this. If you guys skip all these Sabbaths that is supposed to be a sign of my relationship with you, I'm still going to provide a Sabbath to the land. What I'm going to do is I'm going to allow your enemies to come in and take you over, and they're going to carry you off captive, and nobody will be here to farm your land. Well, that's exactly what happens in Israel's history. We go to Second Chronicles chapter 36, and it says he took into exile into Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now the word that he's talking from in Jeremiah is Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 11. It says, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. And so what's happening here is God tells the people through the prophet Jeremiah, you haven't been keeping the Sabbaths. And so judgment is going to come. At that time, Israel had not followed the Sabbath principle for 490 years. Think about that. That's like twice as long as the history of our nation. So what did God do? He said, all right, now Babylon's going to come in and they're going to carry you off captive. And so there's going to be nobody here to farm the land. And so he tells them, how many Sabbaths have you missed? Seventy. So for 70 years, you're going to be in Babylon. When you read the book of Daniel, Daniel realizes he's keeping a calendar. Seventy years is coming right up. We're going to be returning. We're going to be able to come out of exile and go back home. He sees it coming. This Sabbath is what set the clock on how long until they were able to come back. It also makes a lot more sense of the book of Nehemiah. You read the book of Nehemiah, and there's about three things that Israel does that violates faithfulness with God. And Nehemiah gets really excited about it. In fact, at one point you see him pulling people's hair. The, the merchants kept coming into Jerusalem to sell goods. And he'd catch them doing it on the Sabbath day. And he'd lock the gates and close them outside the gates. And they would sit outside the gates kind of trying to entice people to come out and do business with them. And Nehemiah would go outside the gate and say, If I catch you anywhere near here on the Sabbath day again, I'm going to come out and lay hands on you. <laughs> and you're going, wow, this is pretty intense. Kind of like the, the zealousness that you see in Christ when he cleanses the temple. They're just coming back out of being in exile. And they've been in exile for 70 years. And why have they been there for 70 years? Because they haven't kept the Sabbath. And now people are already starting to violate the Sabbath again. And he's like, no, no, we're not having none of that. So this Sabbath is very, very important to the nation of Israel. It's one of the, one of the focal points of Israel as a nation. What, what about us? We go to church on Sunday, not Saturday. And that seems to have changed. If we look back at it biblically, there's several passages within the Bible that point to a change that took place at, in the early church. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, it says in the first part of that verse, on the first day of the week when we gather together to break bread, assuming this is referring to the Lord's Supper, he says we gather together to break bread. We do that on the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 16.2 says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of, each, of every week, each of you is to put something aside to store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. They were taking an offering to help the 
persecuted saints back in Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul says, as you gather together on the first day of the week, every week, be laying aside money, be taking an offering for that, be collecting it so that it's already collected when I come to haul it back to help those people that are suffering for Christ. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, he refers to the first day as the Lord's Day. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And so there's a change that takes place with the early church that seems to have shifted from the Sabbath focus, which remember the Sabbath was given specifically to Israel. But this Sabbath focus becomes the Lord's Day. And they start meeting on the first day of the week. Well, the reason for that is Jesus Christ rose again from the dead on the first day of the week. And so we gather on Sundays because we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So as we look at this history of the Sabbath with Israel, we see one thing is repeated over and over through it is that it was firmly based upon the completed work of God in creation. But it is also projecting forward. It's looking forward to the completed work of Jesus Christ. We still have a Sabbath, but our Sabbath is Christ. Our Sabbath is not a special day or a special moment. It is in Him that we have rest. Let's also consider that the Sabbath results in rest. He states that repeatedly within the passage too. It's based on the completed work of God, and it results in rest. It resulted in rest for God, and it results in rest for us. What do do we mean by that? Let's try to apply this. I want to apply this passage in three different ways. We're going to apply it first of all, doctrinally. What do we learn about the things that we believe from this passage? We learn two things that stand out as very obvious. The first one is sovereignty. This is God's activity here. God is in control. God is making his world. He's forming his creation. Notice what he does. His pattern of what he did and what he accomplished, he says, then needs to be our pattern. He said, I worked six days, took a day of rest, Now he tells his people, you work six days and take a day of rest. And so he makes for for Israel, especially when it gets to there, he makes his pattern be their pattern. You're following me. You do what I did. So we see the sovereignty of God in this issue. But then also we see sufficiency. The fact that God took a rest just reiterates what he's been saying all through chapter one. It was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. It's all done. can take a rest. One of the nice things about the construction field is you always see what you did at the end of the day. You actually walk out your truck at the end of the day. All you got to do is turn around and look and you can see what you did or didn't do. (laughs) You know what? I've, I've been on jobs where you step out at the end of the day and you look back and you're like, very satisfying. And you go home and you're at rest with it. You're good. You know what? I've also been on jobs where you don't go home and be at rest with it. Maybe the concrete set up faster than you were anticipating or, and, and you're not at rest with that. I know I did a concrete slab for somebody a while back and it was three trucks. And you know what? The last truck set up faster than the first two when it got in the hole. And by the time we got off that concrete, you could hardly do anything with it. And I was not very happy with it in the end. And then I think that was, I think that was right before the weekend. I think that was a Friday, Monday morning. I went back out to the job to strip the forms and I talked to the customer and he says, you know, I'm not overly excited about this. I said, you know what? I'm not excited about it either. And we're not going to, we're not going to quit here until we're happy with it. And so we, I, I ran up, bought an extra grinder and a bunch of grinding wheels, and we just ground and flat the whole surface of this slab. Finally, to what we got it. You know what? At the end of that, it was like, all right, now I'm satisfied with it. It looks nice. 
And the customer said the same thing. Hey, very happy. Now, then was the rest. God is saying here is, is all of His work in creation was sufficient. It was, it was good. And the fact that He can set it all aside now and rest just shows the completion. It shows the sufficiency of that work. But you know what? It doesn't just point to that. As we said, it also shows the sufficiency of Christ. Christ is our Sabbath rest. That Sabbath rest was to prefigure what Christ was going to do for it. And the New Testament states it in several ways. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, it says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus claims to be that rest for us. He says, come to me and you will find rest for your souls. In Hebrews chapter 4, God took this idea of this Sabbath rest and He kind of mingled a few things together. And He looks at Old Testament Israel. And Israel was looking forward to getting into the promised land. That was going to be their rest. We're going to be finally home. We're going to settle down. We're going to be, we're going to be in dwelling places and the wells are already dug and the fields are already planted and we're going to be at rest at home. And God said that a whole generation of Israelites missed the rest because they didn't believe, because they didn't trust. And then He takes that and He merges it with the idea of the Sabbath rest. So you have the promised land rest and the Sabbath rest, and he kind of mingles them together. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, he says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. If you remain faithful, there is still a Sabbath rest. The promised land was one of them. The Sabbath day is one of them. But there's this coming Sabbath rest. And he says, so anybody that's entered their rest, what do they do? They stop working. The Sabbath is kind of a, another one of those things that we talk about often that is already but not yet. We already experience the Sabbath rest of Christ because I'm not trying to earn my salvation. I'm not trying to work my way there. I had to stop working for my salvation. Stop trying to justify myself and recognize my condemnation in order to be redeemed by Christ's finished work on that cross. I stopped working. I enjoy the rest that I receive in Christ. So part of that is right now. But there's also a coming rest when the, the, we're no longer going to be under the curse. The curse is going to be lifted. There will be no more of the effects of sin upon the world. And so that is our ultimate rest that we finally get in Christ in Colossians chapter 2, it says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. As he says, that Sabbath day, all these Sabbath rests, they were a shadow. They were prefiguring Christ. They were showing an image, but the reality of it is Christ. But then he goes on, let no one disqualify you, insisting, that on a, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? 
do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, the severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, this brings us into our next level of application in our lives. So doctrinally, we see the sovereignty of God. We see the sufficiency of God in creation and the sufficiency of Christ in salvation. He is completely sufficient to provide this rest for me. I can't earn it or achieve it. I just have to experience it through Christ. Devotionally, we have mainly one thing that I'd point out, and that is this idea of transformation versus conformity. You see, the gospel works transformation in our life, not just conformity to external standards. And that passage that we just read in Colossians is dealing with just that. He said, don't let anybody judge you in regards to keeping a holy day. Also, dietary standards. Some people would say, don't eat this, don't drink that. And, and, he, and then they would kind of make that a uh, laws of spirituality, let's put it that way. As long as we're keeping these rules, then we're godly. We're, we're, we're breaking those rules, then we're ungodly. And they would make these external laws. And so what they do is they try to conform to those external laws. And that's not really what this is about. This is rather tra- about transforming into the image of Christ. He was telling them, look, you've got to realize that this is not about conforming to another list of rules. It's not about having a new New Testament law or even about keeping the Old Testament law. It's about being transformed, changed from the inside out. And when does that happen? It happens as we cling to Jesus Christ in our relationship with Him. That's why it tells us in the book of Galatians chapter 4, it says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved by those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Notice what he says at the end. I am afraid that I have labored over you in vain. He's saying I'm afraid that your faith that you can profess up front is shallow at best, maybe even non-existent over this one issue. And what is this issue? External conformity. He says you're putting yourself in bondage once again to special days. Are we keeping the Sabbath? Are we, are we celebrating these new moon festivals? Are we, are we, they got these special days, that, and they're looking at that. They're measuring their relationship with God by these special days. And he's saying, wait, you don't, you don't realize. Those special days and everything of the old was pointed to Christ. Christ fulfilled all of those. So now if we cling to those rather than embracing Christ, then we miss the whole point. It's not about just conforming to a standard. It's about being transformed from the inside out by a renewed and renewing relationship with Jesus Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But you know what? That's where we have trouble. Because it's always easier to avoid Christ. And you know what? We avoid Christ in two ways. Some people avoid Christ by saying, you know what? I deny Him. I don't believe in Him. He's got nothing. i got nothing to do with Him. And they live their life however they please, contrary to the Word of God. Some people deny Christ in that way. But you know what? Some people deny Christ through religion. Through religion. You realize if I can justify myself, if I can keep this list of rules, if I can accomplish these little tasks, keep my little holy days, keep my dietary standards, keep all my, you know, my do's and don'ts in line, then you know what? Then I can really accomplish it without Christ. I can really justify myself. I can be okay. And it's just one more way of avoiding Christ. I can do it without Him. I can do it on my own. And that's really what our tendency is. 
It's not about you conforming on the outside because you know what we do? We drift toward that religiousness. It's the same thing that the Apostle Paul would tell Timothy. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. He says these people are going to come along and teach false doctrine, and what are, we going to, what are they going to look like? They're going to look religious. They're going to, they're going to teach uh, about abstaining from marriage, abstaining from food. In other words, that we get closer to God by the things that we give up. I deny myself. Back in, in Colossians, it said asceticism. He said it looks appealing. It looks like there's a wisdom to it. It looks like I'm sacrificing this for God and I'm giving up this for God and, and so I'm getting closer to God. And he says, no, you're not. You're, you're getting farther from God. Because you think it's about what you eat and what you drink, but it's not. It's about what's in your heart before Christ. It's about walking with Him, resting in Him. Let me ask you this. Does your relationship with Jesus Christ feel like you're resting? Because it should. We should be resting in Him. We should be at peace in Him. But we still get, we still get stressed about what people think about us and what our schedule is. And, but if I'm abiding in Christ and I'm living in Christ... Then, then I don't need to be focused on what everybody else is thinking about me because the one person that really matters is completely fine with me. I can enjoy the justification. We're always seeking self-justification. If I just do this, then I'm doing good enough. If I just do this, then I'm doing good enough. If I read this many pages, I'm doing good enough. If I pray this long, I'm doing good enough. I just, you ain't never going to be good enough doing that. In Christ, you're already there. Now, does it mean we shouldn't read and pray and all these things? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But you know what? We can do those things in peace if we recognize the sufficiency of what Jesus Christ did for us. You know, he only said eight things while he's on the cross. I don't think it is finished was a just wasted breath because he wanted to say something. It is really finished. We are, through faith, justified in Christ before God. There is nobody left to impress. We should be at rest. As long as we're trying to justify self, as long as we're marching down that road, we'll never experience it. It's, it's only through Christ when we realize the one that finished it for us that we can rest in the accomplished work that He did. You see, that's what we see devotionally. We see that transformational nature. Now, do you see what happens? Now, all of a sudden, as you think that way and you relate that way, it, it, it empowers you. Now you're free to live the life that God wants you to live. Do you see that? It just, it just strengthens you. It transforms you. But then lastly, we also want to apply this in community. I'm not an island to myself. God never intended me to live it alone. You know where God intended me to live it? He intended me to live it with you. And He intended you to live it with me, with us. We're to flesh this out in community. So let's think about how this, how this applies in community. You know what we see in community? Unity, not scrutiny. Unity, not scrutiny. We see the different passages in the New Testament where these issues come up. We see them in 1 Corinthians. We see them in Romans chapter 14. Colossians, it says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or regard to a festival, new moon, or Sabbath. Let no one pass judgment. You see, the problem is that if we start going toward conformity in our personal lives, make this list, little list of rules, we keep these rules, we start comparing ourselves among ourselves, which the Bible tells us is not wise, and we start judging other people by the standards that we set up, and it always leads to judgment. Now, there are places for judgment. The Bible commands us to be judges over one another when it comes to real sin in our lives. 
this is not one of those issues. In the community, we're supposed to have unity, not scrutiny when it comes to these issues. In Romans chapter 14 and verse 5, you know what he would tell them? Here's the answer. They were having an issue there. Some people were honoring the Sabbath, some not. And there were strong opinions both ways on this. And what does the Apostle Paul tell us in Romans 14:5? One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And so unity was to rule the day. And so as we look at this passage, we see the Sabbath. At the end of, at the, end of the week, God rested. Who would have thunk that all, that all that that would mean for us, right? It was based upon His finished work in creation, and it pointed forward to His finished work at the cross through His Son, Jesus Christ. The Sabbath results in rest. We experience this rest doctrinally as we trust in the sovereignty and the sufficiency of God through, through His Son, Jesus Christ. We experience this rest as we experience transformation then. And as we experience that transformation, it impacts the community. And in the community, we enjoy unity rather than scrutiny.